Quick shout out to all of you wonderful listeners, not only here in the States, but also in Australia, Canada, UK, Japan, Germany, Mexico, Chile, Brazil, Israel, and all the other fun places. I'm not sure how you found me, but I'm glad you did. And now. It was a $2 billion catastrophe without a single fatality that brought portions of the city to a standstill. Today we're talking about the Great Chicago Flood of 1992. I'm Tommy Henry and this is the Chicago History Podcast. We're coming up on the 30th anniversary of this bonkers event in Chicago's history, one that I remember well, so let's dig into it. Monday, April 13th, 1992, a pretty forgettable Stephen King adaptation called Sleepwalkers was number one at the weekend movie box office, and Vanessa Williams was in her fourth week of a five-week run at number one on the Billboard Top 100 chart with Save the Best for Last. Morning readers of the Chicago Tribune are greeted by stories of the war in Mogadishu, moderates sweeping the vote in Iran, and golfer Fred Couples donning the traditional green jacket after a two-stroke victory in the Masters Tournament. As workers arrive at downtown offices, many notice something is a bit off. In some buildings, phones aren't working, the power isn't on, and for those who work on lower levels or in offices below ground, there's water slowly covering the floors. Hours before, an engineer in the merchandise mart named Bill McGing was in a basement boiler room on the north side of the building when he saw water reportedly just a few inches deep. At this point, according to McGing, quote, it wasn't trickling, and it wasn't cascading, end quote. No worries, right? At 5.57 a.m., the Chicago Fire Department received its first call. They responded by sending a battalion chief, 30 firefighters, and a few trucks and engines to the Merchandise Mart. By the time the CFD arrived, the water level in the Merchandise Mart boiler room had risen from 2 inches to 2 feet. By late that afternoon, it would be as high as 17 feet. Not long after 6 a.m., a call was made by fire officials to the complaint department desk of the city's water department. The coordinator for the city's emergency preparedness disaster service, Fire Commissioner Raymond Orozco, was also notified, as was the mayor, the chiefs of police, sewer, water, transportation, and the streets and sanitation departments. Now, initial speculation was that a broken water main might be the cause of the flooding. After a series of experiments in which different water lines were shut down without effect, it became clear that this was not a water main break. Around 6.30 a.m., Thomas Kennedy, the Executive Vice President of Administration Operation for the Merchandise Mart, arrived. It was soon determined that the problem was coming from outside the Merchandise Mart. The problem was coming from the abandoned tunnels under Chicago. Now, this is where I would normally say, and because Chicago, but this story has so many layers of and because Chicago, a lot of those stories going back nearly a century. 
1899, the Chicago Telephone Company had a monopoly on Chicago's early telephone system. That is, until a company called Illinois Telephone and Telegraph came along and said they would offer rates that were roughly one-half what their competitor was charging. The yearly rate for the new company for Chicago households would be $50, just over $1,700 in today's money. Few oppose the ordinance that was put forth to allow the company to operate. One of the big supporters, St. Louis-based Anheuser-Busch Brewing Company, who saw the phone systems in St. Louis grow rapidly under the same program. In February of 1899, the ordinance was passed by a vote of 52 to 4 for a term of 30 years, quote, covering all the territory inside the limits of the city of Chicago, end quote. In the area bounded by Fullerton, Western, 22nd Street, Halstead, 55th Street, and the lake, all wires were to go underground. The digging commenced not long after. Digging for these new tunnels started in two places. The first shaft leading to the tunnel was built in the basement of the Powers and O'Brien Saloon on Madison, just west of LaSalle. The Powers was Johnny Powers, alderman of the 19th Ward, who was part owner of the construction company. The other starting point was on State Street near Lake Street. While these tunnels were supposed to be used just for stringing phone cables, they ended up being constructed large enough to include tracks for small freight cars. This would later come as a surprise to the mayor and to other local aldermen. When the city discovered what was going on below, construction was halted, but, because Chicago, payoffs were allegedly made, insert gasp here, and tunneling started anew. In 1904, the Illinois Telephone and Telegraph Company sold all of its property, including the tunnel license, to the Illinois Tunnel Company. A lot of these same names were part of both companies, so I'm sure this was a pretty shifty deal. By 1906, freight and coal was being moved under the city, which, based on the congestion at street level, probably wasn't such a bad thing. As of 1909, there were nearly 60 miles of networked tracks in the tunnels. The tunnels, on average seven and a half feet tall and six and three quarters feet wide, ran roughly 33 feet below the street level. 250 engines guided 2,500 freight cars, an average of 10 miles per hour. The standard freight car was 44 inches high, 48 inches wide, and 10 and a half feet long. The longest straight length of track was two and a half miles running under State Street from Illinois Street on the north to 17th Street on the south. The tunnels, which stayed around 55 degrees all year round, employed 600 men. The greatest number of freight cars in use was 3,244, which occurred in 1927, and the greatest number of electric locomotives in use was 149 in 1928 and 1929. The tunnels remained in operation for the next 50 years with a few changes. The underground subway system built in the 1940s dissected some of the tunnels, and advances in transportation above ground made the tunnels pretty obsolete. 
The final freight train ran in the tunnels in March of 1959. Oh, one more thing on the tunnels. In February of 1968, as the city prepared for the upcoming Democratic National Convention, Cook County Sheriff Joseph I. Woods planned to create a riot control unit of 1,000 volunteers between the ages of 21 and 45. When asked what he would do if several thousand persons were arrested during protests, Woods said the detainees could be held in places such as the yard of the county jail, the Grant Park underground garages, Soldier Field, or even the abandoned tunnels beneath the loop. Bonkers. Thanks for joining me for Tunnel Talk. Back to 1992. A small whirlpool is noticed in the Chicago River near the old Kinsey Street Bridge. Authorities and engineers determined there was a hole in one of the old tunnels near the bridge, and water from the Chicago River was flooding into the network of tunnels, now just 47 miles in length, that had gone unused for the most part for over 30 years. These tunnels were not made to carry water, and the water that was filling the tunnels had nowhere to go but to spill out into the underground levels of downtown buildings. Within an hour of the Merchandise Mart call about flooding, five more buildings reported water. In the second hour, four more calls came in. Between 7 a.m. and 8 a.m., city officials learned that City Hall and Marshall Fields were flooding. By 9 a.m., 11 feet of water filled the lowest of City Hall's three basement levels. Toilets and water fountains stopped working. City Hall was ordered evacuated, as were other area buildings. At 10 a.m., Mayor Richard M. Daly began a press conference by letting out a deep breath and saying, What a day. Water continued to pour into the tunnel. Levels and basements were rising at two feet an hour. Fire Commissioner Orozco had already initiated the first phase of evacuation from Washington to Adams and Dearborn to Michigan. Commuters continued to arrive by train from the suburbs, unaware of the chaos downtown. Workers at the county building hauled vital records pertaining to births, marriages, and deaths, some more than a century old, from the basement. At certain points of the day, parts of City Hall were under nearly 30 feet of river water. By 11 a.m., the second phase of the city's evacuation plan had begun from the Chicago River south to Taylor Street and from Canal East to Michigan Avenue. All told, roughly 250,000 people were evacuated from Chicago's downtown area. Engineers and city officials crowded the bank of the river near the leak, trying to find out just how to plug the hole. They didn't know how big the hole was. Spoiler alert, at this point, it was about as big as a car, and they couldn't send divers into the murky water for fear they'd get sucked into the tunnel. Mayor Daly brought in John Kenny, whose construction company helped build one of the earliest subway stations at Clark and Division. Kenny got to work trying to find a solution. He also became the go-to guy to explain the efforts to plug the hole to the press. His calm, reassuring demeanor would later help get him the nickname Flood Stud. 
Workers dropped sandbags into the water. Barges were brought in to drop gravel into the water above the hole. Dump trucks brought large rocks and boulders and dropped them into the river. I recall mattresses being dropped into the water. Not a good look for a city. By 12.08 p.m., 23 downtown buildings had reported flooding, including the Chicago Hilton and Towers. The Board of Trade and the Mercantile Exchange were unable to keep operating, causing financial repercussions around the world. Power had been shut off to significant parts of the loop, which meant the L was not running. Shuttle buses were brought in to help transport stranded commuters. Banks, schools, department stores such as Marshall Fields and Carson Perry Scott's State Street stores, restaurants, theaters, small businesses, all were shut down. While the tunnels had been closed off, boarded up, bricked off, and forgotten about, those efforts did not make them airtight. So when the water surged into those tunnels, well, we see what happened. By late afternoon, quick-dry cement was poured into the water above the hole about where the whirlpool had been. The whirlpool began to disappear. Flooding began to slow, but continued. The following day, Tuesday, John Kenny and his crew formulated new ways to try to stop the leak. As building owners pump water from their basements, it drew more water in from the tunnels, making Kenny's challenges more difficult. In an afternoon press conference, Mayor Daly revealed that the year before, the city had hired contractors to replace wood pilings near five bridges on the river. These wood pilings keep boats from potentially crashing into bridges. As there was concern by the contractors that the replacement pilings near the Kinsey Street Bridge might damage the bridge tender's house, they asked if they could move the pilings approximately one foot. Without anyone verifying that this change in position might cause problems and ignoring warnings in the city contract that, quote, even slight position changes may cause serious damage to various underground cables and structures, end quote, the pilings were driven into the riverbed in late August of 1991. With such force, they shifted clay soil and cracked the wall of one of the old tunnels. Now, you might assume the city sent someone to inspect each of the five sites where the pilings' work had been done, right? Well, someone had gone out to inspect the sites, but only ended up inspecting the pilings at one site, at the Cermak Bridge. And, say it with me, because Chicago, when the engineer was asked why he hadn't gone to all the sites, he explained he couldn't find parking at the other sites. This was nearly eight months before the flood. I mentioned earlier that the tunnels stopped being used in 1959. Although they had stopped being used for freight in 1959, the tunnels were later used, starting in the mid-1970s by Commonwealth Edison as an inexpensive alternative to digging utility trenches under city streets. Cable companies also ran fiber optic and other cables underground in these tunnels. Use of the tunnels by various companies generated roughly $10 million a year in fees for the city around this time. In January of 1992, a cable company inspector in the tunnels discovered a leak in the ceiling of the tunnel. 
near the Kinsey Street Bridge and videotaped the damage and resulting water coming in, later notifying city officials. City officials immediately jumped into action, rectifying the situation with... Well, I wouldn't have this episode if that really happened. What actually happened was they sent a guy down to take pictures and pre-digital cameras. That guy had to send his film to the local OSCO to get processed, which took a week to get back. Twelve days before the flood, city engineers met to discuss whether the crack could be fixed. They estimated it would cost about $10,000. The transportation department got three estimates to fix the cracked tunnel, and all three were right around $75,000. Certainly more than the $10,000 the city thought it would cost, but if all three were in the same ballpark, surely you'd accept one bid and get the process moving, right? Nope. Commissioner John LaPlante, 52, who had worked for the city for 30 years, thought they should get a few more estimates. Two more were scheduled for April 14th, two days after the flood. This, let's call it hemming and hawing, would prove to be LaPlante's undoing. By Tuesday, the day after the flood started, Mayor Daly forced LaPlante to resign for failing to fix the leak before it became the nightmarish flood that shut down the loop. In a City Hall news conference, Daly said, quote, The problem was brought to his attention, but he failed to act, resulting in a major problem that could have been avoided. End quote. LaPlante was the second commissioner of the Transportation Department to be ousted by Daly in just eight months. One Daly advisor was quoted as saying, LaPlante had to go. That's how the game is played, and everybody knows that. By Thursday, Commonwealth Edison reported that only eight buildings remained without power. Flood stud John Kenny came up with a new plan, one involving drilling perpendicular shafts into parts of the tunnels. Fourteen alternating divers would then be lowered in cages into the shafts and would place, by hand, sandbags to stem the flow of water. They would then be able to seal the tunnel with concrete. Nearly seven days after the flood began, the concrete plugs held and the flooding stopped. It would be weeks before the basements were pumped out and cleaned up. All told, the Army Corps of Engineers pumped 134 million gallons of water out of loop basements. President George H.W. Bush declared Chicago's Loop a federal disaster area, making it possible for individuals, businesses, and local government eligible for aid to cover up to 75% of expenses related to the flood. Vice President Dan Quayle even visited the city to offer his support. To avoid the chance of future floods, in May of 1992, workers from the Army Corps of Engineers began installing 26 2.5-inch thick bulkheads throughout the tunnel system. These bulkheads, which operate like submarine doors, would seal off sections of the tunnel. Pairs of solid bulkhead doors were installed at Orlean Street, Ogden Slip, and Kinsey Street, where all this nuttiness began, That sealed off those sections from the rest of the system altogether, closing them off entirely for future use. 
In December of 1992, Mayor Daley brought reporters on a tour of the tunnels near the Merchandise Mart to show off the new repaired system. Daly, thrilled that the project came in at $4.9 million, about a third under the projected $7 million cost, called the view, quote, amazing, and, referring to the tunnel, said, quote, it's a great concept when you think of it. It's really an asset way down here. Thanks for listening to today's episode about the Great Chicago Flood of 1992. This episode was written, recorded, edited, and catered by me, Tommy Henry. I have a brief list of links to books as well as other related items in the show's notes, as well as on the Chicago History Podcast website at chicagohistorypod.com if you or someone you know is a history nerd like me who would like to learn more. Anything ordered through those links, not just the items listed, may earn a small commission for the podcast and help offset production costs at no additional cost to you. If you don't already, please follow the show on social media as I update Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram throughout the week with articles, pictures, and behind-the-scenes whatnot to enhance the episodes. As always, if you have any questions about anything covered today, anything to add or have an idea for a future episode, I'd love to hear about it. Send me an email at chicagohistorypod at gmail.com. The amazing original art for the Chicago History Podcast used on the social media pages was created by John K. Schneider. You my boy, Johnny! He can be found at angeleyesartjks on Instagram or via email at angeleyesartjks jks at gmail.com I will be back soon with more stories from Chicago's history. Until then, get out and explore when possible. Learn more about whatever city you live in and stay safe.